0: welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Halberg, and on today's episode, we discuss the litigation that is ever increasing in the election law field. With November 3rd just five months away, it's the perfect time to learn about effective ballot management and the best steps to prevent election interference. But before we dive in, IWF does know that many Americans are facing unprecedented challenges due to COVID-19, and that it's more important than ever to show it America is made of. IWF is highlighting American ideals of ingenuity, generosity, and kindness from everyday Americans donating blood to companies providing free food and housing. It's a beautiful reminder that we're in this together. Visit IWF.org or check us out on Facebook and Twitter and follow our campaign using hashtag in this together. That is hashtag in this together to learn more about the campaign. Now to our guest, Jessica First Johnson. Jessica is a- counsel at Holtzman, Vogel, Josefiak Torchinsky PLLC, focusing her practice on political committees, campaign finance, and election law, lobbying and ethics compliance, and tax-exempt organizations. Jessica served as general counsel to the National Republican Congressional Committee in the 2010 and 2012 cycles, and prior to her time at the NRCC, Jessica was an associate in a Washington, D.C. law firm advising candidates, members of Congress, and other elected officials. Jessica, A pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Thanks for having me, Beverly. So I thought I would start us off by something easy, talking about the very controversial tweet that the president sent out about mail-in ballots. You know, start easy. Let's talk about that. Um, (laughs) But before I ask the question, let me go ahead and remind people of the tweet that he sent that did cause Twitter to enact their first fact-check on the president. The tweet he sent out is there is no way zero that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. The governor of California is sending ballots to millions of people. So my question is, first of all, is this an accurate tweet? Should it have been fact-checked or is it a mixed bag? Some things are accurate, some things maybe not so much. So what I
1: think is definitely true is that mail-in balloting itself is fraught with opportunity for confusion, especially amongst voters, and anybody who's in the election administration field should really be kind of concerned about the idea that, you know, um, especially Democrats are pushing for these all-mail elections everywhere. Uh, in 2016, there were only seven states where a majority of voters cast ballots by mail, and we only have a very few number of states that do their elections entirely by mail. Um, most relevant, I think the Washington Secretary of State, Kim Wyman, when she was first, um, you know, on the spot in light of the pandemic and asked about the move to all-male elections, she noted that it took her office five years to transition to an all-male election plan. So this is very, very difficult stuff. You know, one of the leading election attorneys on the Democrat side uh, just, you know, noted today on Twitter that he was nervous about, um, you know, the Postal Service's ability to handle all-male balloting. So, you know, I think that um, there are tons and tons of issues and tons and tons of reasons to be concerned about about this idea that we as a country, whether it's because of a pandemic or anything else, can really just quickly shift to um, all-male elections. And I think that the states are right to be looking at all the potential pitfalls and to think about how to do this um, most efficiently um, that protects the vote.
0: And when did mail-in ballots start? I know when I think of that, I think of military people who are serving our country overseas, obviously can't vote in person. But when did the mail-in ballots start? And do you think that there are very valid reasons why we need to keep it it open in all states, even if you don't support fully moving towards a mail-in system?
1: Well, you know, mail-in balloting has been around for quite a long time. I mean, think back to the 2000 election where we um, infamously had these hanging chads, right? You know, those were, some of those were ballots that were cast in polling places, but other of those were absentee ballots and the like. Um, So, you know, it's not that the mail, the mailing of a ballot is a new phenomenon. It's just that we're seeing, especially right now, this really fervent increased push to move, um, you know, the substantial amount of voting to be done online. Um, Across, you know, states, especially with the primaries where we have this week, you know, Pennsylvania comes to mind, uh, Wisconsin certainly we saw last month, Um, you know, DC, I think they said that their uh, absentee ballot request was tenfold from what it had been previously. So I think what's happening is that we're just seeing this increased demand, again, especially in light of the pandemic, for mail-in balloting, and so it's something that states are really having to grapple with. That being said, it's absolutely true that there is a great subset of folks who still will insist on voting in person. Um, And, you know, there's also been research that's come out in the last few weeks about how this move towards mail-in balloting might disproportionately impact Minorities and low-income voters. So that's that's also something to contend with. There's certainly that sort of theme that was running throughout the California 25 results that you know people have been analyzing in light of that special election last month. Um, so there's we have a lot to learn. Again, I think that states um, are right to resist this call to just wholesale move you know their entire electoral process to mail without really understanding a the process that's required. I mean we saw you know, in D.C. this week, these long, long lines um, that, you know, people seem they've moved their voting centers, I think, down to 20 from the the larger number they'd have previously. They seemed, you know, relatively unprepared for that. So there's, there's certainly a process here um, that has to be considered. I think states are kind of right to say, can we just hold and Make sure we're responding to this pandemic in a way that allows people to vote safely in a way that they're comfortable, but we still have to be thoughtful about enacting these wholesale
0: changes that might call into question the the results of the election in the end. And a term I continue to hear is this term ballot harvesting. Can you explain yeah. what that is? And also along those lines, when we talk about mail in voting leads or has a higher percentage of fraud, why is that? How does that lead to greater fraud? Well, I think, you know, when you
1: taking the mail and voting first, you know, when you um, think about the process that's required to mail in a ballot, you know, that there are certain things that a voter has to do. You have to remember to sign it. You know, you have to make sure you get it in by the deadline. Um, if you've had some, if you've never voted be- before, perhaps your state has some sort of IED requirement. There might be a witness or an affirmation requirement that you have to complete. There are lots of opportunities for voters to, you know, just mess up and um, have a ballot submitted that doesn't check all the boxes, and for that reason, the ballot will be, you know, not counted. And I think that, again, going back to this idea that some folks really like to vote in person, I think that is is one of the reasons why that may be true. That um, it's just fact that absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, are often not counted um, proportionately when you consider them with the ballots cast in the polling places. So. You know, I certainly think that um, that's something that uh, folks have been really concerned about, you know, and, and used to push back when we see these calls for all mailing elections. Ballot harvesting, um, something, you know, that you're right, it's definitely been a term that we've been hearing more and more. There's been litigation, um, you know, that's, that was started some years ago, actually. I you know, there's, there was a very prominent case in Arizona that has um, really, you know, um made a lot of people interested in this term, but we're also seeing this continue to you know crop up across the country now in light of the pandemic. But this is this idea that you know somebody who is not the voter and not a family member or a caretaker, as is often provided for by the state laws, can collect these ballots and once they've been voted can return them to you know whether it's the um, local elections office or the secretary of state or whatever the proper or vote center or whatever the the state um, says is permissible, but that, that's what this term means. And I'll admit, you know, in, um, when election officials kind of have this public debate about whether or not this is appropriate, they really don't do a great term, of, you know, great job of defining this term and, and helping us understand what they mean. But that's that's really what it means. And so the issue here is that you know, say that somebody is out collecting ballots and they, you know, have to turn them in by, you know, the, the close of business on election day, the time the close the polls close, but yet, oops, you know, they forget um, a big box of ballots in their car. Um, that, you know, is certainly something, and then those ballots aren't counted. I mean, that's certainly something that is not outside the realm of, of uh, possibilities and something to be thoughtful about. But I think also, you know, the reason ballot harvesting is often thought to create opportunities for fraud, which the House Administration Committee in um, the minority, the Republicans did a great job of laying out recently in a report that they issued last month. Was is that you know you've got all of these um, people who have no formal uh, relationship with these voters, often who are responsible for collecting their ballot. And there's really no way to tell that there wasn't any undue influence or pressure um, to, to tell these voters how to how to vote. And so you know I think the Republican argument against ballot harvesting has been listen, well, first of all, we're in the midst of a pandemic. So, you know, the idea that we want um, total strangers going to voters and collecting ballots from them that have been often sealed saliva is sort of silly. I mean, that just runs um, counter to everything that you know, we're seeing from the CDC and other guidance in terms of how to stay safe. You know, but I think Republicans are saying, like, we absolutely want to make it easy for people to vote. That's why, you know, you see some states grappling with, well, should we prepay postage? Is that a way to make this easier? You know, should we create um, drop, drop box places, you know, that are monitored? Or how, how should we do this? But this idea that, you know, random individuals can, can go throughout our community, especially in the midst of a pandemic, and collect all of these ballots where we have no idea, they're they're not required to report how many they collected, when they collected them, who they collected them from. And I just think it creates an opportunity, again, for these election results to be called into question at the end, which I think is something that is deeply important for our country to have faith that, you know, the election results as it's reported, be it on election night or weeks later, I think, as we're going to see more of, you know, that there that there's something to it and that it's, it's right and it's fair and it's
0: accurate. And I think ballot harvesting is really something that
1: can call that into question.
0: And I'm glad that you brought up election integrity. I think not only the mail-in ballots, but another aspect of this that is really concerning is that in 2016, there was the Russian interference into our elections. Do you think that we are facing a point in time where the integrity of the election is going to be questioned more than ever before and could lead to a lot of chaos? A hundred percent. And, you know,
1: I think the best indicator of that is the litigation. That's just flying rampant um, in the election administration arena. You know, it seems to me that particularly Democrats have been kind of unwilling often to accept, you know, the what the voters have determined on election night. And you see these Crazy lawsuits that come um, right after an election. I think that sort of sends a message that the you know results um, delivered by elections officials in their various jurisdictions are not to be trusted. Um, but then you know we also have these situations where the rules are um, you know up for grabs, and the Democrats are requesting that these rules be changed so close to these elections. Um, I think that it causes voters to, again, question whether the process is correct and then ultimately be confused, you know, and all of this only means that, you know, if you have a close election, whereas that should be normal, right, we should want these like heated debates and we should want, you know, um, we should want two great candidates, we should want two good options. So when you have a close election, that should that should be a great thing but we should all rest assured when we get the answer that we know that this person was properly elected and i don't i don't think that you know this litigation that we're seeing is really helpful to that cause it seems like it just never never ends <laughs>
0: And so let's get into what you think are the best steps to try to, as best as we can, ensure that there is integrity in the election results. So when you think about the management of elections, of course, states can decide what they want to do as far as how people vote. But based on what you work in and what you see every day, what do you think the state should do to try to make sure that their citizens feel very secure in the results and the outcomes?
1: Well, yeah, sure. There's so much. You know, I think that States really do have an obligation to push back against these federal mandates that we're seeing coming. I mean, as you noted, the Constitution really defers to these states on governing the time, manner, and places of their elections. And so I think voters, um, you know, inherently trust their local elected officials, their election administrators, their states more than they trust the federal government. So I think it's really important that states continue to stand strong there and to, you know, reserve the right to make their own changes. I think that your local elections officials are you know, most are best educated about the people that they're working with. And so allowing them to really have a great say in the process is is, uh, super helpful. You know, I think poll workers um, need to continue to be very carefully selected, trained, protected, especially during a pandemic. You know, I think we've seen so much out there about concern for um, voter health and safety, but what about these poll workers and the canvassers? Um, You know, I think that training these folks will will make everything run so much smoother, um, not only on election day, but in the canvas, which again, with this increased mail-in balloting, that is likely these canvases are gonna last longer. And I think that training um, could be super, super helpful. I think, um, you know, one thing that was really an issue in the Florida recount in 2018 was this opportunity to cure ballot infirmities. And we've already talked about now, absentee balloting being subject to um, mistakes that voters can make, and often these ballots aren't aren't ca- counted. So you know, I think states, if they haven't already, and a lot of states do, um, states should really look at um, making sure that there's an opportunity for cure. There's an opportunity for notice to the voter that there was something that was wrong with their ballot, and an opportunity to cure that ballot and get that ballot counted. And I think that courts are seeming very interested in ensuring that you know, voters do have this opportunity, um, and and again, that is such a challenge and so much easier said than done, given the uh, great number of mail-in ballots that I think we're going to see across the country. But I think it's really important to allow voters to, you know, know that their vote um, was being counted. Um, that was another thing that has come up this week in the District of Columbia elections. You know, they had an app for tracking. Um, the ballot and and that seemed to kind of fail at the last moment so there was a lot of voter confusion about whether uh, their their ballot was counted or received so i think anything we can do to um, you know help voters rest assured that you know if they follow the process and if they attempt to vote that we're going to do our best to get that vote counted i think that would be really really helpful um i think you know ballot access is is definitely also something that we've been looking at especially in light of the pandemic you've seen a lot of states grappling with Signature requirements, is it still safe to collect signatures? Um, these are just a, a bunch of issues that I think, you know we really have to look at carefully um, in order to conduct an election at, at any point, but especially now in 2020, where we seem to be facing so many
0: challenges in this country. I wanna close with a topic of discussion that has come up and that is a discussion to say that we need to get rid of the electoral college and go with a national popular vote. Of course, Congresswoman, mm-hmm. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has been leading the way. We've talked a lot about states and voting. It's states who set up voting. How important is it for states to have the electoral college in place?
1: Well, I think I have to note. I think it's very ironic how um, the interest in this topic and kind of the partisan alignment I think has shifted. You know, I've, I've read um, that the in the late 60s and the early 70s that you know, it was really the civil rights leaders that were pushing for the idea of the Electoral College, because at the time it was thought that it would really present an opportunity to build coalitions and really get some of the populations and people that had been underrepresented in our vote, um, get them a say. And and doing that by, you know, as we we now know, the Electoral College, it it gives, uh, you know, raises up some of the smaller states and gives them more votes by determining this based on congressional representation. And some of the Larger states, you know, don't have as much of a say. It sort of is thought to kind of even out the playing field. But I think the the uprising against consists is is a little strange, given that the electoral college is not all that much unlike, you know, our Senate or our House, where you can also, in the Senate, you know, you can win the majority um of of the Senate in terms of having, you know, control of the leadership there without having won the most votes for all senators across the country. Same thing in the House. You know, you can be elected Speaker of the House, your party can be in power in, in the US House without having won the majority of the House votes. So I think that, you know, this is something that's been so long standing in our country and it survived um there's some times where it seemed to work against one party one election and then the other party um, the other election, I know there was a time years ago where, you know, Republicans were really angry about the Electoral College. There was a blue wave period where it seemed that, you know, Republicans couldn't quite figure out how to um, how to win elections given the Electoral College. So I think this is I, I, I mean, I, I guess if I'm predicting, I feel like this will die down. This does seem to be kind of a, a hot issue right now. And I think the faithless elector case before the Supreme Court is, is certainly shining a light on the concept of the electoral college, the idea obviously that President Trump won the electoral college without winning the popular vote. Which, by the way, I mean this seems to be something that most people think is so crazy. But you know, it's happened twice in the U.S., happened twice in India. I know um, has happened in Australia, Canada, Japan, Great Britain. So we're hardly the only country where we have this kind of construct. Um, and I think it's served us well in the past. And again, I just. I'm really um, reluctant to agree, and I, and I hope other you know, folks that are looking at this issue feel the same way, to kind of wholesale throw out something that's been in place for so long and has really served a, a lot of us well over the years. Um, just because there was this one very controversial election, which I think everybody would agree also involved a polarizing president, um, it, you know, it doesn't mean that justice wasn't served. It just means
0: that we had sort of an interesting um, effect from the application of the Electoral College. And final, final question for you, what, how are you preparing for election day and what you expect your workload to be like around that time? Are we, are we in the, in for the long haul and determining who's <laughs> president, do you think? Yeah, I, I hate to tell you, but yes,
1: I think so. You know, I think, um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I,
1: you know, last year, and, um, or last election, I should say in, in 2018, you know, I made a really grave mistake, which is very, um, silly for an election's worker to do and i scheduled a vacation for the week before thanksgiving and of course um right as that happens then i find myself in the midst of the recount in florida and the vacation was canceled and my kids were not going to disney world and it was a horrible horrible situation for them obviously but um i've learned my lesson and and i would i would give that caution to others who are looking at um, working in this field or volunteering you know or, or or unfortunately even just having to uh Think about how they'll be impacted by their local news coverage. But yes, you know, I think um, if the mail-in balloting doesn't do it, which I, I certainly expect, there will be a lot of states and places where you know we don't know the results for days, weeks. I mean, there's places out west, particularly California, Arizona, where that's always already been a problem. So I think we'll see more of that. Um, you know, just the canvas will take a long time, and that will prevent us from knowing results right away. But also the litigation that will be filed, you know, it, it, it is inevitable. Um, we're also um, upon a redistricting cycle, so a lot of these local elections that you know are certainly important always have not even heightened importance now because a lot of states, um, you know, tell the legislature that they have the authority to draw these maps for redistricting purposes. So, you know, that gives these elections another another level of import that you know will you probably incite more litigation and. I think that, again, unfortunately, you know, a lot of times the parties, particularly Democrats, are looking at ways that they can sue to get the result that they didn't perhaps get on election night that they wanted. So, you know, I think that um, we no longer have election night at all. I think we have election week, maybe election month, uh, but I think this idea that, you know, we will will wake up on November 4th and know who has won the presidency and who
0: is in control of the House and the Senate is probably uh, not really something to bank on just what everybody likes to hear election chaos. I'm sorry. Right? No great news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we so appreciate though, you coming on and explaining um, the issue for us. And also just thank you for all the work that you do to try to um, work on the integrity of elections and the litigation that comes from it. So thank you for joining us on She Thinks. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate last if you enjoyed this episode of she thinks do leave us a rating or a review on itunes it does help and would love it if you shared this episode so that your friends know where they can find more she thinks episodes from all of us here at independent women's forum thanks for listening